Natalie and Brulia, welcome to the Icons by Motiversity. You just never know what is around the corner when you make these changes. We all get so scared to make a change. And beautiful things happen when you just, when you liberate yourself to let go of everything and go, well, I'll just quit music. It still found its way back to me. And I'm sitting here now with this album that's like the best work I've ever done that I'm so incredibly proud of. I don't care what anyone thinks. I would never have thought I could be sat here now confidently with this body of work. No way. On the soundtrack of people's life, it's fair to say that for a lot of people around the world, Natalie Imbruglia has a song that is locked in. In the late 90s, her mega hit Torn and her album Left of the Middle took the world by storm. I don't care, I have no luck. It won countless awards, it broke records, it was sung on every road trip for about a decade, and it made Natalie Imbruglia's name and face known around the world. That song and album alone are iconic. But to me, this is where Natalie gets even more impressive. Because she's a trailblazer. Listen to this. Before music, at the age of 16, she starred in a soap opera. Then, still as a teenager, she leaves the show, moves from Australia to the UK, and breaks into music as an extraordinary success. And as if that's not enough, she then returns to acting and stars in movies that are box office hits. And now with the release of her new album, Firebird, that's out everywhere, Natalie Imbruglia is firmly back in music. My gosh, Natalie, your journey is amazing. I find it fascinating, so let's get into it. Thank you so much. What a lovely intro. You made me sound great. <laughs> I'm feeling pretty good about myself about now. <laughs> <laughs> you know, it's, it's fascinating. I, I mean, your name is, is, I was just in Italy and was, it was talking with friends down there, and, and your name is known worldwide. And as I started to kind of look into your story, I mean, this story is just extraordinary, how you've really just pushed to keep uh, exploring new territories. I find that really, really cool. You left school to get into acting and you went into a soap opera at 16. Like, what was that like to be that young, taking such a bold move? It's quite bizarre. Um, I often wonder about what I was like at that age when I see my niece at the same age and I, I try and imagine her doing what I did. Some of us just come through differently uh, into this world. And I think for me, I, I was in a very small town. I didn't have showbiz parents, but from a very young age, knew that I wanted to, what I used to call be a star. I used to say to my mom, I want to be a hairdresser through the week and a star on the weekends. Where does that come from? And that was at the age of three. So I was singing into my hairbrush at a very young age and, you know, had these dreams that were kind of outside anything I would have access to. So I wrote a list in my bedroom and I remember saying I was going to be on Neighbours, E Street or Home and Away, the three main soap operas in Australia, because that was an out. I'd seen other people do it. I knew it was possible. So, and then I was like, I'm going to then be a movie star and then I'm going to make albums. I can't remember which order those last two were in, but I wrote it down. And I think a lot of people do this as a way of affirmations or, you know, making things happen. In my own little way, I guess, um, I didn't question it. It was just going to happen. And I don't know if that's because it was destiny or if there is something to what you believe you make happen. So I just got a guest appearance on one of those shows and they offered me a full-time role. And I said to my parents, I'm going, I'm going, I'm moving to Melbourne. Please don't try and stop me. <laughs> so basically I was a nightmare child <laughs> for my parents. 
who were probably terrified and both had jobs and were busy and, you know, would not be able to drop everything and come and take care of me in Melbourne. And I was like, I got this, you know. No fear? No fear. No fear. I didn't know how to pay the phone bill. I had to ring my mom. I was like, how do I, I these things come in? I'm not quite sure. So obviously there were practical things. I didn't know how to sign on and off to get paid at Neighbours. And I just didn't do it for like two weeks. And someone was like, you have to put your, I was like, okay. Um, you know, so I don't know. I think it's, it set me in good stride for, for the path I've chosen, you could say. I think there is something about that power of belief. I, I really do. Um, but I think where a lot of people get stuck is, is the action of it. So you're on Neighbours, this soap opera in Australia for two years, still a teenager. And then you leave the mm -hmm. show to move to the UK. Still fearless for you? Like still, this is just the path for me? What had happened was I'd actually tried to record some demos in Melbourne, but I was recording songs like Diamond in the Rough by Sean Colvin. And I'm like 16 and a half. And, I'm, and they, they want me to do dance music. And I'm like, you know, I think I'm just too young to be taken seriously. But because so, you're a dancer. Sorry, I don't mean to interrupt, but you're a dancer as well. Or, or had been. I was a trained dancer. I danced from the age of three till the age of 16. So I was, you know, one exam away from being a qualified dance teacher. Um, and I was in a professional dance troupe in Sydney, so I used to get paid to do performances as well. So, yeah, I was, I was dancing, you know, outside of school, um, performing and everything. So I, w I was what you'd call a stage school kid. I also did lessons with um, Joe Andre, who was a singer from the Conservatorium of Music on the Gold Coast. But, you know, all very amateur kind of performing of arts outside of school. But a performer and then so leaving UK heading to or sorry, leaving Australia, going to the UK. What was that like? Well, that was actually because I, I basically was trying to move into music in Melbourne. And then I realized the kind of music I wanted to sing. I was too young to, to do. I didn't think I was, but clearly that was the reaction I was getting. And I probably was too young to be singing Sean Colvin songs. But um, I went to England to do pantomime, which is what. Australian soap stars do. They go and do a pad of mine, make some money and come back to be actors in Australia. So it's a way of like funding being an out-of-work actor. And that's, that's what took me to, to the UK in the first place. And I did this pad of mine. I played Snow White in Canterbury. <laughs> and then I just saw this whole other world. And, you know, for an Australian who's, you know, going to Europe and seeing, I was like, wow, there's this whole world out there. So I think that's what enticed me. And I, I just thought I've got to move to the UK. That was the motivation. And then I got there and I was very famous because Neighbours was two years behind. So I had a bit of time, you know, so I was getting paid to do appearances and I was trying to get acting work and I couldn't get a job. So I went, you know, I went there with opportunity and the opportunities dwindled and the money ran out. And that was a scary time. And that's when I started songwriting. So many of our audience members, one of the questions we get all the time is just, how do you get started? What would be your advice to someone who's in that spot? Maybe a small opportunity didn't work out, unsure about themselves. What's your advice to them getting started? I think, I think you make your own opportunities. There's always something 
there's always a way in. I mean, I was from this tiny little town and I could have been like, there's no hope for me. Um, I was doing talent shows in a local shopping mall, you know, like whatever. I would have sung anywhere or taken any opportunity. I think that you have to be hungry and you have to reach out. And my mom wouldn't let me get an acting agent. So I got on a train and went to Sydney and got one myself, you know. So you have to have that tenacity. But first and foremost, you have to believe in yourself because if you, if you don't have that fire, nobody else is going to believe in you or buy into that either. And it's a difficult industry, so you have to also have a very thick skin. You have to be prepared for rejection. And you have to – this is why I always quote this book, um, The Surrender Experiment, because I think it's a really good – a really good one for viewing things that seem are seemingly disasters. And we all go through periods where these kind of things happen as opportunities. Like, okay, why would this be happening? What's on the other side of this? Instead of seeing it, I mean, I had writer's block. I'm a singer for more than five years. Um, and for a while that followed me up. And I hid behind that and I did other things and I found ways around it. But then when, when I hit it head on and I found a way through it, I've written the best album of my career, in my opinion, and I've had the most fun. I've been in flow. It's like I can do no wrong. And I think a lot of what changed for me was how I felt about myself, the willingness to fail, the willingness to apply a discipline with something that you could say, oh, it's just creativity. And it's like, well, there's still a discipline. You have to show up. You have to be willing to write some bad songs to get the good song. And that's the part that the ego can't handle. That's the part where you're like, ah. So I just, I cried a lot. We laughed at some of the bad songs, <laughs> my managers and I. And, uh, you know, you just, just don't give up. Just don't give up. I wonder too about the the pressure. I mean, you you had a song early in your career that that was just. I mean, it's iconic, um, extraordinary success. What was that like for you, having one of your early songs take off in that way? I was doing a lot of spiritual practice at that time of my life before that first album came out. I'd met a meditation master, so I was doing. I had a lot of tools, you could say, and my perspective on who I am and what's important being that I was famous young and then you know dove deep into this eastern philosophy and spirituality and meditation so I had these really good tools for becoming mega famous again overnight with this song which was this is not me <laughs> I'm not what I do and you know, what are you going to do with this experience? Keep your feet planted on the ground. And I used those tools to be able to cope with that. Um, and it's transient. I mean, I'd, I'd been famous and then not famous. And then, and so if you, once you go through the rhythm of that, you have no attachment to that. You don't define that as meaning anything other than a result of being on camera a little bit more frequently. So I don't place any importance on those things. And I was able to value the good parts of it and um, certainly handle the fact that everybody had an expectation of me after that first album. 
to live up to that. And that I found really hard. That's probably the hardest part was not, you know, the celebration of Torn connecting with everyone around the world and my first album doing so well and winning awards. And I mean, that was fantastic. And I made a promise to, to, to enjoy it and savor it in case that's, that was the peak. Um, but it was then writing the second album and that was the, the, the challenge for me. And that's where those tools came into play. So I consider completing that album as one of my greatest achievements under that kind of pressure, I would say. Mm-hmm. You know, those, those early albums and um, experiencing, you know, being an overnight star and then also working through that second album. How's that impacting this current album, Firebird? It feels like it's kind of so far removed from it. I mean, every time I do an album, it's a comeback. I think this is my hundredth comeback. I mean, it's literally, I take so long between albums, it's never considered a roll on. So um, I feel like what's great about that, what's benefited me is that when you're not oversaturating (laughs) the market with yourself, it's like people are interested because it's been a while. And, you know, I don't really promote myself in between projects. I've got something to say. So I normally have quite a good experience anyway. Um, There was one album that got shelved and didn't get a proper release. And that's where my writer's block kicked in. But apart from that, I would say I, I think songwriting for that many, many years, there's a spontaneous wisdom that comes with knowing trusting yourself so when I go to a writing session I don't turn up with homework with like notes and song titles and you know because I trust the process and it comes out of the ether and I what I do is I get into the energy of the person I'm working with and chat to them get to know them and have them get into my head and the song usually just flies in when you do it that way instead of like trying to fit a poem you wrote last night into this new environment that doesn't work over those chords and it gets clunky. And um, I think I have more fun. I trust myself more. Um, And just years and years of of practice of doing something repetitively, um, I can say that I'm getting better at it. I mean, I'm not a music expert by any means, but listened to the album and, and found myself like, especially through the start of it, it's just, it feels really happy. It feels happy and energetic and, um, yeah, and, and also connective as it kind of gets through into that kind of middle section through the end. It feels like uh, one of your gifts is really connecting with, with people who listen to your, to your work. So that's what came across to me. But uh, take that with a grain of salt, as I said. Certainly not a music expert. <laughs> <laughs> well, I don't th- I'm not a musician. I don't play an instrument. So for me, I see myself more as a director. It's like being a director. So the, I'm, my gift is com- being a communicator. So... I feel like there's the tone of my voice and how I communicate how I'm feeling is what lands. And I've had to learn that that's my gift and that's valid. Like I don't need to, it doesn't need to be this or that or the best songwriter or I can't sing fancy licks with my voice. Like it just doesn't do it. It's quite a basic, simple voice. But once I got comfortable with what my unique gift is, it made everything so much better because I wasn't trying to be something that I'm not. You know, so I, I just feel like um, I have a really good time walking into a writing session now because you kind of, 
the confidence grows over time. And, I, you know, I talk more in pictures and stories and, and that's not how I'd say it. Or, you know, I don't feel like there's that emotional payoff yet. We have to keep going. Verse two doesn't make sense. So I'm always trying to make sure that when, that the listener is going to get that oh, feeling. That's what I'm going for, where that emotional point lands and then they, you know, don't feel so alone or they can relate to it. So that's, that's usually what I'm going for more than anything. Yeah. And I feel like that raw emotion, it, it does come through. I want to, I want to get the quote right, just because you've been quite open about some of the periods you went through where you were working through different emotions. And I think it was during that time where you were putting out hit movies and hit albums. And you said during that period for, for a part, I was successful, rich, and terribly unhappy. Can you tell us about the emotion you were feeling when, when you would have said a quote like that? Um, I can't even remember when I said that, but I think it's it's true to say there have been the periods of my life where I've been the most successful and I've had more money than I have now, and I have been unhappy. Um, I think something I've learned is the more you have doesn't mean, you know, the happier you are or it just more things mean more problems and more things to manage. Um, so... I remember having a second home in LA and trying to be J-Lo meant in the nicest possible way. I love J-Lo. But, you know, I was like, yeah, I'm going to have, and then I just had, you know, to manage two properties and all this. I was like, what am I doing? I can't afford to be doing this. But it's easy to sit there and kind of tell somebody else about that when they haven't had the chance to experience that. All I know is that because I've been blessed to have some of those opportunities, um, the gift of that is I don't need those things. And living simply, um, there's a lot to be said for it. There's a lot to be said for it because it frees up a lot of space to do things that do make you happy. When I was looking into your story, the word that kind of kept coming back to me was fearless. Like just, it felt like you, every time things were working well, you were willing to move on to the next thing. Um, so from the outside perspective, that's, that's the impression I'm getting. And, and you, but then you also talk about having writer's block and, and running into real roadblocks with confidence creatively. What were you experiencing during that time? That was really hard. Um, and I think it was because an album, I got dropped by a label, an album got shelved. And uh, I never really understood why or it was never explained to me. You know, sometimes you just think the universe is trying to tell you something. You're working really hard and it's just not working. It's just not working. So it's not about quitting. It's about realizing that you don't know. It's okay to not know. And it's okay to need some time out. It's okay that I went to Currumbin Creek in the Gold Coast of Australia and stand up paddled and that was my healing. And that was my, you know, like, what do I need to do to take care of myself? Um, and then sometimes, you know, there's a flow happening and whether it's to do with you or outside forces where things are just easy, like this Firebird album, the process of it feels easy. But if I look back, there were all these things that fell into place, you know, for that to happen. Choices that I made, struggles that I went through, decisions I had to make about roads less traveled. And then there was flow. So... Which one is it? I think it's just an interesting topic as, you know, what comes first. 
you know? I do, I do know. I do know. I think, I think this is the, um, the mental kind of tension or struggle that people get into where, you know, it feels like this is right, but right's not working yet. And then what do I do? Did I choose the wrong right? Do I need yeah. to change? Do I, what's, what's the answer there? And there's probably all sorts of chatter from other people. And you're in this space where you're trying to believe in your heart, but you're also trying to listen to your head and, and you're listening to other people. And it's really hard to stay the course. And, and you also spoke a little about just the discipline of recognizing that there's a discipline to work through this stuff. What did your day actually look like when, when you were trying to work through from the lowest moments? What was the discipline to help you build back that creative confidence? Just the act of, of scheduling things in that you have to show up for. Um, I tried a lot of different kinds of things to get myself able to walk into the room. <laughs> Mine was that bad. Um, I tried a lot of different modalities just to kind of not be terrified to kind of turn up to a writing session. Um, all of which were tools to just kind of trick my brain and, and get myself in the room. But more than anything, I think going to Nashville and booking 10 days straight songwriting, which is like two sessions a day, um, hardcore. And I'd, been, I'd, I'd written in Nashville on my first album. In fact, the song Smoke was written under a tree with a guy called Matt Bronlewee in Nashville. So I was aware of, of the intensity of songwriting there. And I just had this intuitive feeling that if I went there, it was going to help me overcome my writer's block. And that's what I did. So I just song wrote, you know, with a bunch of people that some that I'd met before, some I was meeting for the first time. And it was hard because at the beginning of that, I was just going along with everyone else's ideas and going, yeah, that sounds great. And it's nothing I would say wasn't me. And then I'd wonder why I didn't like the song or I'd be crying. I'm like, oh. So not me. And but finishing off the day, not speaking up. So a lot of it was also learning, you know, if, if I if I don't have the courage to say, well, I wouldn't actually say that. That's not who I am. Then I'm not going to be happy with the song because they're trying to help me. And if there's no me in the room, then how are they going to help me write the song? So I think some of what I learned was the courage to just take control of the narrative and shut things down if it doesn't feel like it's me and that's okay that doesn't mean you know you don't want to offend people and in a creative room you have to be really careful but my experience has been that collaborators love it if you're like that's not me so what is you and you're like that's me you know and that's a really helpful useful thing in in a writing session so it's welcome um i guess i'd just forgotten how to do it I think it's gonna be really helpful for a lot of our listeners to hear that you work through confidence challenges. And if you could speak directly to somebody who's, who's struggling with their confidence, what would you say to them? I would say you're not the thoughts in your head. They're just thoughts. You can make up new ones. You can, you, the mind, do something with your hands, go outside, walk, exercise. The thing is the mind's nature is to turn in on itself. And if you just let it run away with itself, it'll drive you mad. So it, this is a work in progress. This is not something you just overcome. You have to find tools, whether it's meditation, whether it's, you know, writing down 
negative thought patterns and creating more positive ones. Like whatever you need to do um, to recognize you're just spiraling. And we do it all the time and it is a practice. And so I have to even myself catch myself being really negative about things. And um, it also depends on how you were brought up. Were you a glass half empty family? Were you a glass half full family? Like what's your coping strategies in life? You know, do you catastrophize like I, I my mother did that so I often I have to fight against going oh my god it's going to be a disaster <laughs> you know so I also got my discipline from my mother though so she there was a lot of good that I got from from the strength of my mom but you know it's just finding ways to work with the mind the mind can can be a great help um, if you can figure out ways to stop it taking over <laughs> The idea of you being a trailblazer and really like pushing into new fields, doing things maybe a bit differently. What's been the good and the hard that's come with that approach? I never meant to be a trailblazer. I mean, it depends which part you're, t- you're talking about being a single parent. That's certainly part of it. But I think it's maybe I mean, I'm knowing you for a short amount of time and looking at your story for a short amount of time, but it feels like it's, it's quite a consistent theme that you've been able to really just take these big steps into new endeavors where a lot of people would have said comfort, comfortable is good right now. Um, so to me, that really is kind of breaking new ways and it's, you know, your, yeah. your pathway into parenthood, um, but even your career choices. So I'm guessing there's been fantastic opportunities that come with that, but also some hard parts. Well, it's weird because my, my mum's the one that taught me never give up. My mum was really tough. And when I wanted to quit tap dancing, she was like, you're just angry at your teacher. You're not quitting. And I was so mad at her. I was like, I can't believe she won't let me quit. But children love a, a boundary. And I think it's something that's really stayed with me. So when things are really hard, um, I don't quit. Uh, but if there's a moment where I'm truly lost, it's a courageous step to say, I'm going to walk away. So it's just checking in with yourself. And I think we know when we're just being scared and we know when it's like, no, I genuinely don't know what I'm doing or what I want. And like me giving up music. And that might have been because I had a confidence crisis, but I think anyone getting dropped by a label at that point in their career you know, with what they considered to be a good bunch of songs is confusing. And it's okay to do that because you just, you just never know what is around the corner when you make these changes. We all get so scared to make a change. And, and beautiful things happen when you just, when you liberate yourself to let go of everything and go, well, I'll just quit music. It still found its way back to me. And I'm sitting here now with this album that's like the best work I've ever done that I'm so incredibly proud of. I don't care what anyone thinks. I would never have thought I could be sat here now confidently with this body of work. No way. It didn't seem possible, but it was the courageous step to accept that I didn't know what I wanted to do and to express myself through. um, I went and studied with Ivana Chubbuck and learned acting. You know, I did other things. And I gave back and I was a judge on X Factor to these young three girls that have a career now. And like, you know, I just, it's okay. And it's okay to, to have periods where you're just living. You know, I think we, we, we're in a world where it's like, 
do, do, create. And it's like, well, not everybody is built that way. Some of us move a bit slower. We're a bit more fragile. We need time, you know, to just, just kind of, life can be tough. So I don't think there's one mold for one person and you've got to be okay. I mean, I'm clearly a turtle when it comes to, you know, there's a lot of years between albums, but turtles win the race. So, you know, it's not about the amount that you do. It's just about the care that you take with what you do, I think. Turtles win the race. And, and you've got a great album. I mean, I've, I've listened to it and, and loved it. <laughs> what was your intention with Firebird? I didn't have a genre, a style of music. I just knew that I needed, I had stories I needed to tell. And each song is its own universe. And I don't want to limit myself to one style of song. I love country when you love too much. You know, I like the vibe of Dive to the Deep. Then you've got, there's so many different kinds of songs. You've got Maybe It's Great with Albert Hammond Jr. Um, Nothing Missing, a bit more rocky. I mean, the songs are so varied. Um, so I didn't want to limit myself to that. So for me, it was just telling the truth. And the story was the, the, the start of it. And then the hard part is tying that together at the end of it. But there's about five songs that aren't on the album. Because I'm still old school. I still make an arc with, with my albums. And there's songs that thematically didn't make sense because the subject matter was way off. And I was like, I can't. And, you know, you're doing your track listing and I'm like, it doesn't fit. It doesn't roll off the back of any song because, like, there's no home for it here. Um, and I love that side of it. To me, that's like, um, I know that the, the, the modern way with music now is you just put a song out a month or whatever, but I still approach it old school. Because I enjoy it. It's interesting when you say that. When I, I, I listened to the album last night and found myself getting like kind of pulled into it. And I feel like that was almost the way it was when I listened to albums growing up. Like you'd, you'd sit down and put on the first track and you'd kind of just find yourself getting pulled through. And, and I don't know if I have that same experience the same way nowadays. So maybe that's what you mean by, mean by old school and this kind of arc to an album that just kind of pulls you through with a story. I remember sweating when it's time to do the track listing. It's so important to me. And I cut them all out, kind of David Bowie-esque, all the titles and like the number down the side and I rearrange them. And then I listen to them, how they flow into each other. I mean, that's all of those, the detail of all of that. I just love it. I live for it because I want the listener to have that experience. If it's working for me, I hope that it's going to work for them. You mentioned early your uh, kind of interest in spirituality, learning mm -hmm. in that regard. What have been your big discoveries throughout your journey? Like, what are the universal truths that feel like I now know that to be true? I'm not what I do. Like, who I am is not what I do. I'm not the voice in my head. It's just like the basics. <laughs> um, which for some people, they can't even wrap their head around that. So, you know, that's a big one. Um, if you're not using those tools, then... You're going to have, you know, like I haven't had a proper meditation practice in a while and it kind of shows <laughs> a bit scatty. I'm going to blame that on being a new parent. But, you know, I know that the periods of my life where that practice is in place 
um, everything's a bit easier. Um, we're all connected, you know. I think that's the truth, which even that one some people struggle with. Uh, but that's my personal belief. I think that makes everything easier to wrap my head around that one. Um, yeah, mainly just, just the basic meditation thing has just been a great tool. And just the discovery that comes from being alone with yourself and really kind of searching that internal landscape. Yeah, and it doesn't have to be doing the Guru Gita for an hour and a half every day like I was. I mean, I went hardcore. I did a month silence once, which is hard for me, let me tell you. <laughs> and, and you mentioned, um, sorry, you mentioned starting a family and you have kind of an unconventional journey into starting a family. What can you tell us about that? And, and what would be your thoughts for women who may be considering the same journey? Well, I didn't set out to have family the way that I had. I mean, I was married when I was younger and the plan was to have family, you know, with him. And then that didn't work out. Then dating didn't go so well for me in my thirties. <laughs> and then. Which I think the world know, is shocked to hear, but I can, I can appreciate it. Um, so I think it's just women have a biological clock. We're in a different situation. And so it wasn't like this is, this is what I'm setting out to do. I'm choosing this thing instead of that thing. I think that's a really, I don't want to put that out there because it's not true. And, you know, it wasn't about not wanting to be in a relationship or have that shared experience. But if, you, if you're not in the, a relationship and you haven't found that person, as a woman, what are you going to do? And, you know, I feel like you should be able, family should be for anyone, whatever you want it to be. If that means your children are puppies, then that's your family. Like it doesn't have to be, and I mean that quite seriously um, as an animal lover, like what family should be whatever, whatever it looks like to you. And no one should, there shouldn't be a bulk standard. This is what family looks like. We don't live in that kind of a world anymore. Um, so it was scary though, because you're in the public eye. And so you're like, oh God. You know, I don't really want to talk about it to the whole world. But then I just also took control of that to avoid further press intrusion and uh, and got a whole lot of love back. But it wasn't easy. I'm a private person, so um, it's not necessarily something that I wanted to be talking about and I'm very protective of my son. But I feel like what's happened is I've helped a lot of people and I've had a lot of people reach out to me and, you know, that makes it worthwhile and who'd have thought it was still such a kind of taboo thing. So I think a lot of this I was writing about and coming to terms with on my album as well. So there was a lot of Not Sorry, there's a track called Not Sorry. There's a lot of owning and claiming the road less traveled. And I think it's really cool to kind of be at a place where you take ownership over that. It's a good thing. I think that's really cool People should too. be free to make choices. Exactly. Natalie, what's the legacy you hope to leave behind? Oh my goodness. Uh, that's just such a big word. Legacy. I, I don't know. I mean, 
I'd like just to be known for someone who was wholly who they are and, you know, honest in their truth about it through my art, I could say. That would be nice. And what's next? You've got Firebirds coming. It's, it's, it's here. It's fantastic. Well, the Turtles trying to put out an album in less than three years after this one. But we're not holding out much hope. But that's the plan. I've, I've, I've got the five tracks I told you about. It would be great that I could tour this album next year. Beyond that, I, I, I really don't plan too much. But I'd love to tour this album for as long as is possible and, um, and get some new music out <laughs> in less than three years. If I can. Hopefully we can convince you to come to Canada. Oh, my gosh. I would love. Canada's great. I've spent time in Canada. Mm-hmm. It's been an absolute pleasure. A real pleasure to Thank have this so conversation. Much. I feel like I chewed your ear off. I'm sorry if I was rambling. No, this has been fantastic. Really um, <laughs> honest. And I think what a lot of people are, are hoping to hear from, from those they've looked up to and known for a long time, just a real honesty about their journey. So thank you. Thank you. I enjoyed it.